Hello, welcome to Benign Narcissist with me, Emma Forrest. This is a special Mother's Day episode of this podcast about creativity and uh, sense of self and ego. And um, I am speaking to a mother who I admire so much for her tremendous artistry, her humanity, her courage, Anushka Shankar, who incredibly last year released her 10th album, despite being well under 40, uh, Love Letters, which um, I will tell her when we speak, is my favourite divorce album since Paul Simon's Graceland. If you know my work, she fits into a particular place of fascination for me, which is about women making the transition from young, youthful acclaim and transitioning into womanhood and what that process uh, entails. Anushka began learning sitar age seven from her father, the world's greatest sitarist, Ravi Shankar, who brought her into his classical Indian ensemble and she toured with him throughout her teens, eventually exploring her own versions of where the music would take her and also very much utilising music to devote herself to refugee and women's rights. Again, we talk about how to uh, both be an activist and make great art at the same time because they don't always always combine as well as she does. So I was so lucky to start this day hearing a new song by you and um, Sister Susanna you sent me, which is going to be on a special edition of Love Letters? Or? Yeah, so so we did Love Letters as an EP, as you know, and it released last year. But yeah. there were a couple of songs that were kind of forming at the time that feel like they're so thematically connected to Love Letters and will never connect to anything else the same way. Mm. And so, you know, after deliberating a little bit, um, I decided to release a couple of new songs alongside a couple of reworkings of songs by incredible other female artists yeah. and put it together as a kind of reworking deluxe package. It's so interesting because when, um, say as a novelist or a memoirist, when you're processing pain and making it into art as sort of an offering to the gods so that you have somewhere mm -hmm. to put it, there's this notion that you've put, there's a saying, you've put the book back on the shelf. You know, the mm -hmm. idea that you keep uh, the pain and the danger between these pages and you put it away. So the idea of being able to keep it alive and um, a, a breathing thing rather than something on a shelf is, it, it's not something I've come across in what I do. It's so mm -hmm. have you ever come back to work before like this? Not like this, yeah. no. Um, I suppose the experience I have, and I don't know how often you you read your own work out loud to people mm. but the experience I have of longevity of the work is of course through playing it live and so whereas yes there is a sense of like closing the book and putting it on the shelf 
with music albums as well that I have to let go and now allow it to be outside of me. I do also get to kind of live in them and they evolve and breathe past the album point. And, And I actually really love that process. There's an organic quality to the way the songs take on a life of their own on stage and change and mutate Mm. beyond whatever I could have originally conceived of, which is really beautiful. So do you think this is something that wouldn't have happened without the pandemic putting a stop to live music? I'm sure that there's a way in which I've been looking to connect with people in different ways more because I'm not doing the live shows that I would have been doing. Um, But Sister Susanna um, has changed um, in this last year through the pandemic, but uh, it, there was a version of it that I was performing live in the very couple of you know, the very few shows we got to do before yeah. lockdown, and uh, and strangely, it was the one that people would come away having been most impacted by, mm. and and so you know the frustrated artist in me then couldn't sit with the decision I'd made not to include it and and felt like there was something there that was connecting to people, yeah, to women in yeah. particular, who were really viscerally feeling this song. Yes. So, I, it, you know. It's, it, it's, it's so beautiful, this, this entire album. Something that's been said so many times about your performances is she left the audience spellbound. And what I hear when I listen to Love Letters is your own spell work for you, as I said the word to you before, unbinding. Mm. That you are turning the spell that you have for decades cast on audiences back on yourself. The suffragettes turning their graves. He thought real life was a holiday. So I'm supposed to be grateful He left behind his wallet It fits into, um, there is a tradition across many musical genres of the divorce album. You know, one of my favorite records of all time is Graceland by Paul Simon, mm. that was about his separation from Carrie Fisher. Um, and I, I, I do think um, so much of divorce, because I got divorced at about the same time that you did, is about a woman coming back to their correct size. Mm. Almost like Alice in Wonderland. Like, what size were you before? Oh, that makes me want to cry. There is something really true about that. Um, I think for me, I grew up sort of across cultures Mm. and and yet, you know, both my parents are Indian. So whereas I grew up in the UK and America and a little bit of India, I was raised in an Indian home. Yeah. And um, after school, I moved straight into touring full time. And and it made sense in my family dynamics for me never to bother moving out because yeah. culturally that's not strange. Yeah. Um, and I justified that with the fact that I was touring so many months of the year anyway. Mm. But there was an inhibiting quality 
within my 20s where I never really stepped out as a result. I would have told you then I was completely free and an adult, but in hindsight, I know the difference. And, um, And so I kind of did that very, what you could call traditional thing of moving straight from my parents' house into my husband's house. Yeah. And, and so it is only through the act of divorce that I feel like I've found something that I didn't even know I didn't have. Yeah. Because now I have it and I know what it feels like. When you're working with your experiences, um, do you then strain it through imagination to make it sort of more universal or safer? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, With Love Letters, I did allow myself to remain more personal than I had on previous work. However, Mm. there was also a sense that what I had gone through was personal, but universal. We've all been through breakups. We've all been through those difficult feelings. And so the work became about me, but it also became about the people I was working with. It also became about women I knew. Mm. And so, you know, Sister Susanna, for example, which moves away from the kind of personal breakup experience more into the idea of certain types of relationships it's in the atmosphere and it's all around me. It's, it's kind of, you know, my mother's, my mother's friends, my friends, me, like we've all gone through various elements of this through our lifetimes. Mm. And so it just felt like I wanted to say it in a song. Yeah. Uh, just, just in case it struck a chord for people. Yeah. I think this album is your core work Mm. um I think this is you know when you do core work and it strengthens your back and it changes how you stand (laughs) you know you've you've made records where you were part of your father's ensemble and then you necessarily made music where you were moving away from that you made music in Indian classical tradition and you made you know experimental music with electronica in it but this feels like well who who is she you know, this is, this is the core. You're so right. I think I've made music that I'm deeply attached to and will, you know, obviously stand by. They're my babies. Um, And they've all been personal in very different ways. But Mm. I think what I've done before is allow some fear of that personal quality to allow me to dress the music up slightly. Mm. And so I I end up taking any original core experience and cloaking it either in greater experience of humanity, so Mm. it's speaking to something bigger, or align it with something else, or kind of allow the song to evolve past that original raw point. And Mm. on Love Letters, perhaps this was my first practice of really trusting that vulnerable space that I think I've only been learning to trust over time as a person Mm -hmm. in order to be able to trust it as an artist. And the people I worked with also were a big part of that. You know, Mm. this was the first, it wasn't the first time I self-produced, but it was the first time I was co-producing alongside another woman. And my my predominant, you know, co-writer, Olive Lenz, co-produced all the songs with me. All the other co-writers were women. And I've got to say that the entire atmosphere of making this music was so different And, you know, Olive was the one, there were times with Bright Eyes, for example, which Mm -hmm. is a really raw song. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to add verses at the end that spoke to where I was in the months that we were writing, you know, so there's an initial raw place and then there's healing. And I wanted to 
give people hope. This is mm. what I do. This is what yeah. I do. I, I think I want to give people hope by moving into the place where everything's okay again. Yeah. And she would kind of gently bring me back and go, but that's not where this song came from. Right. You know, we can write another song. You can write another song that's about the place you're in now, but allow this song, whichever one that is, to be what it is. Yeah. And there is an integrity and a trust to that process that I think allowed that rawness to come out. Yeah. You Which have, I'm so glad about. I adore the song Wallet. It has this mm. um, lyric, I don't know how to stay me, but repetition lies ahead for you. Mm. And um, in Sister Susanna, Nikita Gill, the poet, um, this great line, stop burning so brightly, you are no forest fire. Ooh, it gives me chills. It, it's, it's incredible. And I have to say, I thought a lot about when I wrote my memoir, and I know this is really deep to go for 10.45 a.m. on a Friday morning, <laughs> but essentially the deal I made with myself, um, uh, one of us is going to cry, is mm. it, it, it was a suicide letter that I would never have to send. You know, I made myself a deal that I would create that work and at the end, hopefully I would want to be alive. And that's exactly what happened mm. um was there ever a point where you made yourself a deal that this music didn't have to go into the world it, that enough of a job would be that it had helped you um yes uh I mean it hasn't been the most astute business decision I've made yeah but from a self-preservation point of view I allowed every step of the way that option to remain open for me. Yeah. So it means that we, you know, we didn't make it an album. We made it an EP, first of all. There's no giant promotion plan. There's no big tour. Mm. Um, but it meant that I could back out at any time if that felt like what was he- that was what was healthy for, for me and particularly my family. Mm. Um, but it felt like that gentle process allowed things to unfold mm. a mm. different way. It's the album speaks to something I find really interesting um, is women being put on a pedestal and Mm -hmm. how that in itself is kind of an act of violence. It's certainly an act of erasure Mm -hmm. um, that when a man, the thing that happens is when a man puts you on that pedestal, you can only possibly fail them. But what happens as a woman is from the pedestal, you end up seeing them from a different perspective. And, and that to me thematically is a big part of the record and something that really moves me. Um, and I wondered, is, is that something you had encountered on multiple romantic occasions that because you were the daughter of, because you came from this tradition mm. that you were meant to be on a pedestal? Gosh, uh, that's an amazing way to phrase that question because I was trying to figure out how to articulate that. But I think there's something larger about the way you know little girls can be adored Mm. as these wonderful delicate little flowers Mm. um that then in my case also translated into you know the daughter of someone iconic um that then was sort of put on that public pedestal of you know being the heir to his legacy so to speak Mm. and um and, you know, that kind of psychological impact of taking that as normal, because mm. that's that's what I had, um, did set me up, I think, to be 
in situations, you know, in I would say including, you know, inappropriate situations in childhood. Yeah. Um and and onwards into some some experiences with partners, you know, across the time mm. where that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that kind of person who will save me, sweep me up, yeah, tuck me away, keep me special, adore me. Um, and on the whole, the people who do that are the other side of that same coin. You know, what mm. I was looking for was obviously not healthy, true intimacy mm. on equal footing. And, you know, the people who provide the other side of that aren't looking for that either. And on the whole, people who do that kind of adoration and love bombing yeah. are not safe, you know. Um, yeah. And so I think part of the work and part of, you know, releasing a song like Sister Susanna you know, this last year with the pandemic and with, you know, all that we know about the shadow pandemic and the way that it's been affecting women yeah. and women in vulnerable situations and victims of abuse and some of the most recent high profile cases of of incredible women speaking out about their stories. Yeah. Um, it's just so overwhelmingly prevalent. And I think there's a lot of new, more nuanced dialogue around coercion and control that you know, is really not about any one particular personal experience of mine, but but anything that I have through the course of my whole lifetime mm. to add to that conversation, I feel only serves to enrich that dialogue so that we all recognize more and yeah. see more. Yeah. I mean, something really incredible about your music is that whether talking about issues like that, about coercion and, and abuse and women's rights, in 2016, you made an amazing album, Land of Gold, which was about the plight of refugees. Is that very often, in my opinion, um, activism doesn't necessarily make great art? There's that horrible moment mm. where you're like, oh, it's so well-intentioned, but it's mm. just not that great as a piece of work. But you, um, you've you done it. Like, you've done it. You keep doing it. Um and I wondered, I was curious if the level of discipline that's been in your life from the age of seven in terms of how you create your work, does that amount of discipline sort of give you ultimately free, maybe a greater freedom to, to articulate things that the rest of us are maybe, who are less disciplined, would have a harder <laughs> time with? Um. Well, thank you, first of all, um, for the compliment. I think speaking to that idea of activism through art, uh, I think up until there was one song on on my album, Traces of You, that I wrote in response to the the gang rape and murder of Jyoti Singh Pandey in New Delhi in 2012. Um, and that song was called In Jyoti's Name. And I think that was the first time that any activism I had been involved in outside of music intersected with music mm. uh, prior to that it had all been separate and I and I realized that um you know the the only this may sound bad but like the only reason I personally ever get called to do something for others is because of the empathetic quality of resonating within myself yeah. so either I'm identifying or I'm imagining but basically I'm connecting and so you know, I'm sure, you know, everybody has different opinions on on music, but uh, if, if anybody does feel like the work I've made has worked, um, what I've always tried to do is keep it personal. Yeah. So even if I'm writing about the larger issue, like the refugee crisis, you know, across that album, I was imagining varied situations in order to 
to tap into certain feelings. Mm. But ultimately, it was always coming back to something personal. What would it feel like if it was me? What would it feel like if it was my child I was dragging onto a boat? Yeah. Because that was the best situation that I could, you know, what would it feel like to do that and then come across people who don't see me as human at the end of that journey? Yeah. You know, it, it's the humanity at the center of it that then leads to art because we've got to express something. So it, it, so that's been an empath, right, which can be um, very disruptive and frightening, especially as a teenager in your 20s, mm. when you feel people's pain, basically as if it's happening to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, after that, that attack on Jyoti Singh Pandey, for example, yeah. I, I couldn't sleep for weeks, yeah. you know, I kept walking around as if my belly was hurting because of a couple of the lines in the articles about yeah. what had happened to her yeah. and and it, it is visceral and it's it's horrible and I think at least you know in my 30s I've had an increasing language for mm. that mm. and increasing work that I've done you know in recovery and in therapy mm. but as you say you know in those teenage years which I think you relate to as well but like in those teenagers when I didn't have a language for that yeah it was just so much pain yeah yeah, that was the. It, it's funny as a as a listener. I used to have a really hard time with the songs I loved the most that I would listen to over and over, walking through New York City for you know blocks and blocks and blocks, feeling like I was in the song, feeling like the story was about me, and really having a hard time um, basically delineating what in a film or in a book or in a song was not actually happening to me which of course on the other hand is the purpose mm. of of your work is we're meant mm. to feel like it is when when you're recording do you listen to other music or do you read a lot or do you watch movies like does it bleed in from other places mm. it does I mean I don't have a, a single formula um so I, I couldn't generalize about when making music, whether I'm very outward looking in that time, because sometimes I'm insular in the process and sometimes I'm not. Mm. But in life as a whole, you know, all other art forms feed in to my art. I mean, I don't I don't see a differentiation, you know. Um, in fact, maybe other art forms influence me more than music in some ways, uh, because I can really just be a receiver when I'm watching dance, when I'm reading, yeah. I'm never, you know, even 1% involved sort of with my technical brain. You yeah, know? Yeah, um, yeah. And so, you know, dance in particular, I would really say is something that influences me, you know, seeing, seeing a human body mm. express, express those emotions alongside that kind of incredible virtuosic skill is kind of like the ultimate expression of art because it's it's a body it's a person right there yeah um and it never fails to just impact something in me that I then want to go away and express in yeah. my own way yeah yeah it's funny I was thinking about how again from the age of seven you have been entwined physically with this instrument that is huge <laughs> it's huge Anushka <laughs> and you've had your arms around it and your body pressed to it and I wondered, like, does that wire you a certain way um, as a sensual being, like quite young? And and does it make you more... It's like you're in a romantic relationship mm. with your instrument. Mm. Oh, there's so many inappropriate ways to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a beautiful question, though. Um, I think for me, um, 
there is a lot at the beginning that was not what you're projecting and romanticizing onto it. I wish it was. Um, but in fact, I think it was more like sitting in the lap of patriarchy. Yeah. Um, and kind of feeling like this big thing was going to tell me what to do and how to do it. And so, so the relationship with the instrument was not instantly reciprocal, loving, and energetic. Mm. I think it was uh, one of a young perfectionist who was a little bit fearful. Um, and, you know, a lot of that journey is, is, you know, to do that thing that people always do. You know, it's part of, part of what got me where I was. Mm. But it did take active work. Um, for example, I was sitting with my godmother once in my early 20s and, and saying to her, I don't know why I just really never want to practice. I just always avoid it. It just kind of intimidates me. I don't want to step into something, mm. you know, and mm. there's something, there's an element of that I still struggle with, but it's changed. Um, and she said to me, you know, maybe the fact that you grew up with it being so connected to, you know, the, the music, the, the instruments are emblematic of, of divinity, you know, really, the, the, like books and instruments, the way we treat them in, in Hindu culture. Yeah. You know, so, so for me, growing up with my family, the prayer room was the music room. Mm. So the altar was in the same room. Uh, the instruments were bowed to on certain puja days, you know, and so there was a reverence that for me also came with formality and distance. Mm. And she said to me, why don't you just try keeping it in your bedroom for a while, you know? And that was such a strange wow. thing to hear. Like, yeah. of course, that's what all my friends did with their guitars. But the idea of just propping up my sitar in my room felt weird, you know? And and that made me realize something about my relationship with it. Yeah. And, and from there I did, you know, slowly, like literally like stepping toes into the water would take little risks with where my own boundaries were around seeing this as something to give sanctity to. Yeah versus something to feel close and loving with. And so I never kind of went teenager on it and like went the full pelt the other direction. But slowly, slowly I'd go, how does it feel practicing on the bed? You know, how does it feel not keeping it up on a platform? How does it feel sitting with my feet down in a slightly more Western quote unquote position? Yeah. How does it and slowly just found over years this is myself just getting a relationship with my instrument. Oh my goodness. It's um I haven't told you this, but before we met, when I knew about, you know, we connected by someone, we knew about each other, I was so jealous of you, not just because you're very beautiful, I was jealous that your art came from discipline. Mm, really? Yes. That, you know, what I do, I did because I don't like learning. It terrifies me to learn. I don't know how to drive. I don't know how to speak other languages. There's something, mm. I'm actually literally working on it with uh, psychotherapy, like why does learning something distress me mm. so much, you know, that what I do is just like, because I can write. And I was just sort of fascinated about the way you get wired when your art is so intently or perhaps, I don't know if it still is, certainly was connected to intense discipline. It's so interesting because as you can imagine, or maybe you can't, I was inversely jealous of people <laughs> like you who had the freedom to miss and choose when to come to their art yeah. You know, yeah. and could feel that pull. Um, so interestingly enough, I feel like I've got blocks in me that, you know, require looking at where it's almost like there's some part of me that feels like I've done my time mm. and I've done enough years of feeling disciplined and I just want to go out and have fun all the time. I just want to not apply myself as much as I could sometimes. Um, and I have to sort of 
acknowledge that and sit with that and then try and still do the work but in a more gentle way Mm. um but I do think you're right that there is something about having something instilled in me at a young age Mm. that has given me a particular skill set that has come in handy more than handy has been essential again and again and again over the years Mm. there's certain aspects of my work where I feel an old part of me rise up to the occasion and thrive and it's because I have training in my brain to be systematic about certain aspects of music I have I have training in my brain that means I can have a nearly photographic memory when I'm needing to learn a lot of new material Mm. or can remember things from 20 years before because of the years of playing and repetition opening up and strengthening that part of my brain Mm. so you are right that like it has been an incredible gift to have that kind of teaching and training because it comes out in a useful way again and again that I I'm almost appreciative that you asked me that question because I have to re-appreciate that. I can I can forget, you know, and take that for granted. Yeah, it's. Um, I know this, this is this is my personal request. I have always thought that the story of you and your sister Nora Jones and how you eventually came into each other's lives and how you both had this musical gift in completely different genres and with completely different practices I I want to see the stage musical of that story like really (laughs) truly like it's so um it's almost like a Hindu myth Mm. two sisters on other parts of the world (laughs) with the same father one raised in discipline one raised in you know and jazz is allegedly complete freedom and improvisation and and were you um, sort of bleeding into each other's lives before you did connect? Uh, so firstly, if someone like you were to come up with that kind of a spin on it, I'd be a lot more open to seeing <laughs> it written. Um, it's so a good far, musical. So far, the people that did come up with these wonderful ideas of making big epic Bollywood movies about them was like, no! Right. Yeah. <laughs> no! <laughs> so we... I think the thing is, is that we we were not in each other's lives as children. Um, but, uh, you know, only speaking for myself, I knew of her my whole life. So I always had this sort of missing limb mm. of this sister I knew I had, but I had never met and never known. Mm. And so there was kind of fodder for fantasy there. You know, I, I just used to imagine this girl that looked like me and what that would be like and who she was. And so when we did finally connect um which was when I was 16 and she was 18 and she came to visit um it was kind of something that had been meant to happen for so long Mm. you know and I think she and I both had had an active desire to create that relationship so so we put a lot in um to rebuilding and building something that we wanted so it was really interesting that like some years later when when her first album became so stratospherically successful, mm. you know, actually so many of, you know, everything in our lives had sort of been repaired by then. And it was a little bit, it was quite a painful period, I'd say, you know, when when it kind of became this big story because it just regurgitated lots of stuff in ways that wasn't true. Mm. And the way, you know, you know how it happens, but a story gets told enough times and that just becomes popular culture and... uh and that can be quite tricky. Yeah. Um, but at the centre of it, you know, was was the fact that she and I always wanted a sister. So we built that together. I don't know mm. if that answers your question. I can't it remember do, what your question yeah, no, was. No, <laughs> it, 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 it does. Um, I'm very, very intertwined with my mother, which I know you are mm. as well. And I've only really understood how intertwined we 
we are since I became a mother. Yeah. You know, you have women, very significant women in your life who are from a different generation where it was an honor to support a male musical genius and to sort of, I would imagine, keep private your pain, especially, you know, with other women, with infidelity. And have you had sort of generational challenges about what you were supposed to live with? You know what, at some point in life, I'd love to do a whole book or something about my mum, because She's so unlike what you would expect. Mm. Um, And so the story from the inside is so different from what it can look like on the outside. I mean, this woman was a survivor who ran away from a traditional Brahmin family at the age of 17 Mm. and came to London um, and made her way up from absolutely nothing to working in a bank and buying herself a house uh, in Wilsdon and had a marriage of convenience with someone who for family pressures needed a good Indian wife and she needed help being able to stay in the UK. So they Mm. made a friendly marriage, um, which, you know, as things happened, didn't stay friendly and it was complicated. And, um, and then in the middle of that, she fell in love with my dad Mm. and made an active knowing choice to be with someone who said to her, look, this is what I can offer, Mm. you know? And I Mm. think for me, the example of a woman who chose her story again and again and again, yeah, and actually had incredible boundaries that she stuck with. You know, there was a point before my parents got married where something shifted and it was no longer what she was okay with. So Mm. she actually left. Wow. You know, and it was the leaving that then caused something to shift and then they committed and married each other. And so that that kind of story that we can assume it is, you know, of a kind of philandering man. That's not what it was. Mm. You know, there was a man mm. who knew that he was, you know, only able to do open relationships and a woman who said, okay, that's, mm. that's, that's cool with me. That is progressive. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, it is. Um, and, and so my, my mom, you know, can look like this kind of incredible subservient wife, but that's not how it was between them. That's not what I saw. I saw two people that worshiped each other you know, and, and, you know, coming back to the pedestal thing slightly, but they did put each other on pedestals, but they were also friends. They were also, you know, deeply trusting of each other. And so the thing about the pedestal um, that I think about a lot is what makes great art is two things in opposition existing at the same time and pulling at each other. You know, that's what Mm. makes a a great song, a great book, a great movie. And that's what makes human relationships really difficult is people (laughs) saying, but when people say, I thought you were this, how can you be both? story you know it's very pertinent if you're an artist and a mother like how to be a devoted parent and a free spirit 
Absolutely. Is it something that um, has been a, a struggle to keep that part of yourself and not? I was just thinking about the first time I went to the pediatrician with the baby and they didn't ever ask me my name. They just kept saying mom. Yeah, mom. Yeah. Hello, and, yeah. and I was saying, I'm a, I'm, a, no. I'm a novel. I've published six books. <laughs> I have a name and it's on the cover mm. of my book. Yeah. It hurts. Yeah. <sighs> you know, on the flip side, um, there's a little girl in, in my younger kids class that refers to me consistently as his mummy. Hello, hello, you know, my kid's name's yeah. mummy. And and there's just such a sweetness to yeah. it where I think, okay, it's kind of a relief in a way to step back and be that for you. And yeah. um and yet I hear you, um, you know, it's a weird metamorphosis kind of growing into this other identity and trying to keep all the identities running. I mean, I think that you know, in the last decade, I've probably been most pushed to the edge of sanity several times. Um, but most of it has come from that dreaded word balance, you know, trying to quote unquote balance yeah. being a mother and being a quote unquote career woman um, and kind of trying to f- live that lie that I thought was supposed to be, mm. which is that I'm supposed to still do everything to the same amount like mm. when I birthed my sons I also birthed this clone self that would come out and fill the gaps you know yeah and it's like where does that come from where does all the excess come from if not through a lessening of the other things but oh, oh wait the people I work with the expert they don't lessen the expectations so somehow you're just meant to do more mm. and and it's insane there's certainly there's a, a, a French art film I can see about a woman who's work is celebrated for being the meeting point between east and west Mm. trying to maintain their equilibrium i remember the first time i went to istanbul and there's that point where you can be standing in the east and the west at the very same time (laughs) over the marmara and i remember thinking oh you know if istanbul can stay sane maybe the world can stay sane i got very attached Mm. to that and i there's something fascinating to me about you trying to keep your equilibrium while sort of representing equilibrium Mm. as it were (laughs) yeah absolutely I mean there is a kind of image of of me you know on my dais so to speak um kind of wafting peaceful music out that that uh isn't is not yeah 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 so we know we you you've you've spoken um a little bit um about uh sobriety and um I wonder, is there, because there were, how long would you say, was it a decade that things were not sitting well with you? Well, I mean, I got sober in my late 20s. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess a kind of decade and a half or so. So Um, I wanted to ask what the primary challenge is of sobriety to a musician's ego when the culture so associates alcohol and drugs with musical genius so you know just to just to swing that across a little bit I mean coming from the tradition I come from and you know where I'm going Mm. it's completely the opposite yeah Um, and that's not to say that you know there isn't addiction that there isn't you know a culture but on the whole the way Indian classical music is is presented is as something spiritual Mm. and and there's a kind of mix of cultural expectations uh that that mean that it's sort of frowned upon 
you know, that, that were meant to be kind of emblematic of this kind of spiritual life. Um, so in effect, the opposite was true. And, you know, I, I lived in my life that kind of, you know, rock star dream through my 20s. Mm. But it was something that I increasingly struggled to keep compartmentalized. You know, mm. I'd be stepping onto stage at Carnegie Hall or going to India to these music festivals with my father and trying to project that clean, pure goddess image, you know, mm. <laughs> um, whilst with my peers who came from different musical traditions, we'd be out and about doing all the things we do. Mm. And it was increasingly impossible to to juggle. Anushka, has there been um, a different approach to the work post-recovery? Absolutely. I think, you know, so many people who get sober, that can be one of the things that frightens them is, oh, my God, how am I going to keep making work? You know, how how can I still be creative? And and at least for me, you know, in, in my experience, uh, I've made my so much of my favorite work post getting sober, mm. because if anything, recovery has allowed me to, you know, with time and over time, become more and more myself. Mm. And therefore, my work can become more and more truthful. Mm. And and sometimes I have that experience of being truly aligned with something and those moments of playing, you know, where I feel completely connected are more profoundly high mm. <laughs> than, than anything else I ever could have done. Mm. I, I noticed you worked, uh, I mean, you've collaborated with so many different musicians, but I was really interested about your work with MIA and with IBEA who are, I would have thought around the same age, the same generation as you, and will have come to music from a completely different path, whether there was a particular... I imagine you learned something from anyone you collaborate with, but women your own age who've had such a different way in, was there anything in particular you learned from them? You know, it, it could be because they're women and it could be coincidence, but my experience in this last few years has been that working with the women I've worked with has been a very beautiful unfolding of music. Mm. Um, there's been a simplicity to a cup of tea with a woman, um, a little session in their home or mine, yeah. you know, writing some lyrics down in a journal, maybe ending up on the floor together, mm. you know, um, separating sending a, you know, sending a voice note later, like something just very organic mm. about the process that just really stepped away from the formality of like feeling the need to present when I walked into a studio space with people who were predominantly men most of the other times. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, working with MIA, working with the VAE kind of fell in line with the other people on Love Letters like Olive Lenz, Ayana Witter-Johnson, Shilpa Rao. It was... It was simple is the best way I can describe it. It was simple and it was pretty ego free. Um, and that translated over into the business side as well. We didn't end up having the potential awkward conversations later. Like things just felt very compatible. Things felt very, yeah, I don't know how to describe it. It was just, it was just loving. Wow. That's so, that's so beautiful. Um, is there been anything, any piece of art that's gotten you through the pandemic that you've come back to again and again? I mean, I think for me, something that's inextricably linked together is from early the first lockdown. Um, if you remember, you, you were in the UK, all yeah, long, weren't you? Yeah. So like early March, the cherry blossoms, the magnolia, 
the fear, the daily walk. Mm. And Niels Fromm released an unexpected EP called Empty. And um, and there's a couple of songs on there that I just I see I see the music when I think of that feeling. Like yeah. it just I just remember like walking around weeping and feeling yeah. like I was having a love affair with these cherry blossoms. And the music was just lifting my soul and allowing that melancholy to be. Yeah, and that's that is one of the great gifts of music is allowing you to sort of hold that melancholy um, mm. on your tongue and let it dissolve like a yes. sweet, you know, yes. Is, yes. is important. You know? It's needed. I mean, that that's where healing takes place, isn't it? Like we we all know that through through other forms of therapeutic work, but like we have to allow our feelings to be yeah. in order for them to evolve. And it, it just, I think so much of our lives today is about kind of numbing those feelings or mm. moving on from those feelings or busying ourselves through those feelings. Well, that's social media, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the second I feel something uncomfortable, I'm scrolling on my phone. Yeah. You know? And it, it, it takes really active practice to kind of sit with stuff and at least the, the gap that music allows to just be. Yeah. Do you, do you think, um, I mean, I know girls relationships with their fathers are so, they're so pivotal, that moment in teenage years where you've gone from like, I remember when I was a kid, how much I wanted to marry my father. Mm-hmm. And then the teenage years where you you have to pull away from him so that you can try and go find a guy to recreate your father. Yes. It's so weird. <laughs> um, and for you, in those teenage years, you were being pulled closer. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wrote that book about my father yeah. and, and and now it's like there's a little part of me that cringes, not about the book, but about the title. You know, I called it Love of My Life yeah. because at that point he was my, you know, he was he was what I adored yeah. and idealized. And and you're so right, like in some ways I didn't go through the, the, the healthy separation. Mm. But in other ways that was okay because obviously the connection was coming through music. So the bit that I wasn't pulling away from was this whole other aspect to our relationship that obviously was informed by us being father and daughter, but it wasn't about being father and daughter. Mm. It was the fact that we were communicating through music and like loving each other as musicians. Mm. So so that uh, still allowed a kind of healthy other part of me to go off and still do, you know, what you're talking about and and separate because it was the musical side that wasn't separating. It might be incredibly shallow to have noticed the moment when you cut your hair and had bangs and let it be curly. And <laughs> was that, I mean, that outer emblem of a performer who's not performing? Yes, that's not shallow. Okay. That's, that's lovely. I mean, there's something very primal about hair, isn't it? I yeah. mean, the way we, I think, as, so, as a person of colour as well, like... It had to be examined why I had just believed certain things that that I feel like I picked up from the atmosphere around me mm-hmm. that, you know, for example, sometimes on stage I would have curls and sometimes I would have straight hair. Mm-hmm. But anytime I needed to give a talk or present, I would always have blow dried hair. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think that was something I could do with curly hair, which wouldn't seem professional. It wouldn't, you know, it would seem too messy or non-serious. And when I did have curly hair on stage... It was taking my own curly hair and curling it, right? Even though that took an hour because wow. it was long, um, so that it was kind of shiny, polished 
hair. Yeah. And, you know, having a good friend who styles hair amazingly, who, you know, helped me find a haircut two years ago that meant that just my own hair could just be kind of funky and free and the messy would look good. Mm -hmm. It was liberating, you know, and I think there's also that cliche that we cut our hair after breakups. You know, there is something about always starting a new life with a kind of new haircut that's really weird, but seems to do something. I mean, the entire, the t- almost our entire conversation is the messy looks good. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, it. that's yeah. it. Like, that's why I love love letters so much. Mm. Um, and my final question, have you ever... It's such a journey to go from child prodigy as a as a girl and make the transition to womanhood and stay alive and stay mm. safe. You know, I, have you ever spoken to um, women who've shared that path of of the spotlight from childhood? I want to hear you talk to Serena Williams. You've just kind of taken my breath away. <laughs> um, firstly, because I'd love to speak to her, but but secondly, because you you have pinpointed again something that's so common across fields, which is that a woman's journey is so often a solitary one. Mm. Um, So no, I haven't spoken to anyone else because there wasn't anyone else like me in my field. Mm. Um, And, you know, there, there are some other people, there were, there were a group of kids of famous Indian musicians that Mm. we would meet, you know, at all the festivals. And so we kind of grew up together in a way and we would definitely connect at that time but mm. but I haven't had a conversation from this more adult perspective with with someone who had a similar story no mm. if you were um as someone who's been put on a pedestal against their against their wishes what would you be the goddess of <laughs> um you know what like I'm quite a hippie at heart um and I'm a big fan of like those moments where I put my stones under the moon and I put music on and I remember that I have hips yeah. that can move yeah. and just get into them, you know, and mm. earth myself. Mm. And and I'm lucky to have a circle of women in my life with whom I can do things like that. Mm. And And there have been experiences where I'm in a circle of women and maybe we're burning things in a bowl together mm. or sharing the most deep raw things mm. in order to unbind coming yeah, back to yeah. your earlier point um where i feel with absolute certainty wow we are goddesses that is absolutely the appropriate place to end this <laughs> well that was a pleasure for me i hope you enjoyed it uh do like and subscribe if you did We have a very interesting episode next time with a young genius. So happy Mother's Day. And again, thank you to the glorious Anushka. Mm -hmm.